Welcome to the Tyndale Podcast. On this episode, Tyndale's publicity manager, Todd Starwoods, speaks with former professional wrestling superstar, Lex Luger, about his new book, Wrestling with the Devil. For more information about the book, visit LexLugerBook.com. Today on the Tyndale House Publishers Podcast, we are speaking with Lex Luger, former world champion professional wrestler, about his new book, Wrestling with the Devil. Lex seemingly had it all, fame, money, woman, and saw his life crash around him. His story isn't unlike many others, but Lex, with God's infinite grace, overcame. Lex, welcome to the Tyndale Podcast. Thank you, Todd. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Let's kind of begin really from the beginning. Let's uh, begin by talking about your childhood, growing up in Buffalo. Um, I know you had highly accomplished parents. Your dad was a brilliant musician and your mom was, uh, for high school's valedictorian. What was it like growing up in in Western New York in the the late 60s, early 70s? Oh, it was a great time. I had great uh, childhood, very fond memories. Great mom and dad, uh, entrepreneurs. My, as you said, my dad, and mom, both strong musical background. My mom's dad was off the boat through Ellis Island from Scotland, and he played 12 instruments in the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra, never had a music lesson in his life. So a little bit of musical background on my mom's side, as well as an incredible painter, my grandfather, my grandpa Monteith. And my uh, dad, was basically a child protege, protege, however you say it, on the piano. He was an extremely gifted pianist. My sister is as well. My dad went to Buffalo, studied the piano, and when he was he was going to become a concert pianist, and uh, he ended up uh, meeting my mom, and we they started a family. So instead of finishing school, he went to work at the Trico. Uh, windshield wiper plant in Buffalo. It's a, Buffalo's a real blue-collar town, which I love about it. It's, the people are no-nonsense and just great people. Uh, and uh, my dad went to work at Trico and we started our family. And he, he's still in the music business. Uh, piano, organs, and clocks. Rogers Pianos. He's been in business still to this day. I'm so thankful. My mom and dad, age 79 and 80, go to work every day, seven days a week at Rogers Piano, organs, and clocks in Buffalo. They still do that. And the, they were able to pursue their passion outside of, uh, of what they originally thought it would be. So it's pretty neat, to, pretty neat, uh, great upbringing uh, with them and just a lot of fond memories, even the weather. I, I love to go visit. <laughs> Buffalo's a great place to be from. I live in Atlanta now and love the warm weather. I consider myself a Southern boy, but I, I lo- I'm very proud of and love being born and raised in Buffalo, New York. Tell me a little bit about uh, Mrs. Feldman. Oh, that was my, uh, and the book, I share a lot of little excerpts of my youth and my mom and dad comes up with a strong musical background. I was always wanting to be involved in athletics by that age in grade school. And uh, they, uh, they were kind of confounded by that. So they always wanted me to do at least one musical instrument. So they thought, well, why not the piano? Well, obviously, and uh, she was this, uh, I'll say more mature woman and she smelled like mothballs, and I, uh, my poor mom, I wasn't the most patient young lad, and uh, I had a bit of a temper on me, and she used to be, be in the kitchen, my mom listening to lessons, I'd, be, I'd get upset and pound on the keys and scream and shout, say I didn't want to take the piano, so um, they, uh, that was not uh, 
that was a pretty wild uh, for my that was very I'm sure very embarrassing for my mom and uh, Mrs. Feldman finally said I, I don't think your boys cut out for the piano so we went on the we tried the trombone and you name it it actually simulated eventually and I don't have the greatest singing voice but I could stay on pitch so you got to do something musical if you do sports so I ended up singing in the choir throughout high school, my, my junior high and high school days. That was my one musical interest I had to maintain to have the privilege of playing sports, according to my mom and dad. Did your parents have any interest in sports at all? And None. That's what I thought. Didn't understand it. My dad was cool with basketball, and I was big on, when I was younger, track and field. That's how I found out I was, had this, my, fueled my passion for sports as I, in the third grade, I broke the school record for the 50-yard dash and the high jump and the president's council of physical fitness. I like sort of had the highest grades. So I was, you know, obviously when you're young, uh, any kind of acknowledgement that way really it really fuels you. So I was like, man, sports is my thing. I'm going to be in the Olympics, then I was going to be an NBA basketball player. And, and when I started liking basketball, and when I started to go for football in high school, it was only because all my teammates from basketball and the kids I ran with played football. I go next month. I had never played football. I was in ninth grade, so I decided to go out. My dad wouldn't sign a permission slip. He thought it was a Roman gladiator sport. So I forged his signature to a permission slip, and he, and he had found out much later that I was playing, and he was okay with it as long as I maintained my grades and, and did my choir thing. But uh, I originally forged my his signature to be able to play my freshman year in high school. That was a pretty good time for Buffalo sports at that time. You had the, the Buffalo Braves, Bob McAdoo, and the, oh, and the Bills. And, uh, I used to go all the Braves games, all the same thing. had the French Connections, Gilbert Perot, and Martin, and just uh, incredible. Uh, uh, yeah, Bob McAdoo was filling the baskets up. I think he led the league in scoring a couple of uh, years in a row, and just a great time. We had a big rivalry with the Boston Celtics at the time. Havlicek, and uh, just uh, in the real golden years, I think, of NBA basketball. I used to watch Jerry West come there as a little kid. Will Chamberlain was still playing like in the, when I first started going to games. It was his last year, I think, in the league. So I, I got to see some of the greatest players. Did you, uh, did you usually go with your dad or did, uh, did other people take it? Your brother and your No, okay. my dad did not go to sports. Yeah, sports. I didn't think so. Okay. Upstate New York wasn't certainly known for, uh, for great high school football, so it had to be somewhat unique for uh, legendary Coach Chopa Turner to show up at uh, Orchard Park High School. It was. It was not a fertile blue chip recruiting ground at the time. So him come in there. We just happened that year, Todd, to have a, I mean, outstanding group of athletes in Western New York who played football. And about a dozen of us went to Ohio State. And my friend from Orchard Park, my teammate, went to Syracuse, wanted to play for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Craig Wolfley and uh, Jim Burt. My other teammate went on and played for the New York Giants and Bill Parcells and got a Super Bowl ring and him and I both went to the University of Miami eventually. Uh, but not to get ahead of things, yeah, Joe Paterno coming into Western New York was unheard of. Came to high school basketball games, so that was a huge deal at the time. And uh, Not for my parents, but for people out in Orchard Park and at the high school game. Came to our house that evening, it was funny because my parents, uh, with their background obviously not being sports, I'll never forget Joe Paterno. Uh, I explained in the book a little bit about how he went to leave, and I think he was like just, they didn't even ask for a picture with me, and they went to leave the house. He goes, well, we're in my living room, and he's at the front door, goes, would y'all wanna, would your mom and dad like a, maybe a picture of me at the fireplace with them or something? And my dad and mom goes, no, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was, 
I felt the awkwardness. He had like an assistant with him. I, I go, well, I, I'd like one. So right. we went over with them. I, I was trying to make them feel feel better. My mom and dad didn't care if they got. They just didn't. They didn't know. They, yeah, they didn't know he was that big a deal as a college football coach. And they they weren't impressed. You know, they, I mean, not that they weren't impressed him with his as a person's presentation was outstanding, obviously, because I ended up going there and signing with him the next day. But because uh, obviously he was an outstanding recruiter. Uh, but uh, my parents were, were it was so it was a very funny moment. It didn't even matter to them whether they got a photo with him or not. Were they on board for you to go go to Penn State? Yeah, they went with me actually. My dad was on a few recruiting trips that he went with me on. They went to Penn State with me, and he was in Joe Paterno's home with Mrs. Paterno. They had recruits go out with the football players there on Saturday night, for instance, go to the game, and then Saturday night you hang out with the players, stay with them in the dorms. He was one of the few schools that played by the rules back then, you had to stay in the dorm. And my mom and dad stayed at a nearby hotel and they had dinner that night at the Turno. So they knew that and felt that uh, it was a good school, academic and sports-wise, and felt that uh, Joe Turno definitely cared, obviously his graduation, when he, that he, their main thing was, is he gonna uh, accentuate the academics, which I, they didn't know I had no interest in, uh, but they wanted to make sure I was going to good school educationally and not just for sports and that the coach there would stress and emphasize that we went to class and studied and got our degrees. And he had a, I think that even back then, the best graduation rate of any Division one school. So my parents were, while not enthusiastic, definitely supportive of making that decision. When you got to Penn State, it had to be a pretty big culture change. I mean, a huge school, and uh, what, what was that like? Well, it's a huge school in a small town. One reason uh, it's there, State College, is because of Penn State, so it's, it's kind of an, an entity unto itself. And I think it was part of things, not to, not to get off topic, but what happened with the, with the scandal was it wasn't under scrutiny of like big city press. Mm -hmm. it's all, they call it Happy Valley and everything's good, and the rolling hills and the, the big dairy there that makes ice cream. And it's almost like a fairy tale land town in the middle of Pennsylvania, which is wonderful. It's a great college atmosphere. Great for, oh, the, on a Saturday, the college center for the games, is incredible. I remember my freshman year at Penn State came in and they, and they had uh, Archie Griffin was in his senior year. His helmet was covering those Buckeye stars and their uniforms. I thought they had the best looking uniforms. But that was, I, was, I wasn't I was dressed for that game my freshman year, but I was on the sidelines and it was so cool. I mean, the atmospheres, with that line going off. I mean, it is, it is like second. I know there's a lot of great camps, a lot of great atmosphere, but Penn State, I don't think, takes a bit. Backseat to any of them. The, um, did you redshirt your freshman year? Um, I did not redshirt. Back then, freshmen weren't expected to play. We actually had a couple guys. Matt Mellon mm -hmm. ended up playing pro ball and going being a GM for the Detroit Lions. Uh, Bruce Clark, there's a bunch of players, Mike Gooman, Irv Pink. Our class met, so we played fullback for Belita about 14 guys from our class, myself included, were on the, of that Penn State freshman wanted to play pro ball which even for a, a football school is huge. And, but most of us would dress certain games, maybe on special teams, but we weren't, uh, we weren't red, red shirting wasn't like it is now, like almost an automatic if you're not gonna significantly contribute. The only guys that started, played consistently my freshman were Matt Miller and Bruce Clark, of all those guys I mentioned. Right. And they just didn't red shirt back then. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was different than it is now, I think with the, Reduction scholarships and things happen. They 
Oh, if you're not going to be like almost a starter your freshman year, you're you're redshirt. That's true. And that back then there really weren't roster limits either. No, I mean we had ninety. I think we had ninety scholarships back then. Something crazy. Or maybe even more. Yeah, one hundred and five. Yeah, I think one hundred and five. Yeah, you could stockpile. Sounds like you had a little interest in the uh, in the women's track and field team too. I did. Uh, I always had a love for track and field, where this was my the love of my life to this day, uh, Peggy, and she was uh, a freshman on track team in Penn State, so big academics, all athletes on their varsity sports as freshmen take study hall their entire freshman year. I think it was three nights a week, like Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday for two hours. And a friend of mine uh, said he saw a cutie pie with another girl that he was going to bring by at the table we were sitting at, uh, supposedly studying, and I met Peggy and uh, just was uh, basically, for me, almost love at first sight. I ended up walking her home from the libraries that fall, and we just started seeing each other, and uh, we ended up getting married uh, about two years later. The um, Very fond memories of the Penn State campus because of that. You ultimately decided to leave. Uh, what was the backstory on that a little bit? Well, one was the weather. I grew up in Buffalo, and I was looking to escape the weather. I, I almost went to University of Miami Hurricanes. They recruited me uh, uh, as well. I really wanted to go there, but uh, with Joe coming and things happening, um, I felt like the Penn State football experience, I almost felt like I was an out-of-body experience because all the guys that went there were almost had wanted to play for Penn State their whole lives. Mm -hmm. They're either Eastern, uh, uh, West, uh, Eastern Ohio or New Jersey or Pennsylvania boys. I was like the only, I was the only kid from New York there. I felt kind of, I don't know, I never felt, other, I loved meeting Peggy, but the program, I never felt really comfortable. And they wanted to play me because of the amount of talent they had there in our class. He kept on wanting to play me at linebacker or secondary nose guard. I, I'd be growing up with, in Buffalo with O.J. Simpson and the Juice Company. I wanted to play offensive line. So back in my days, I was, who would have thought, I, I thought I knew more uh, than Joe Paterno and staff about where I should play. So I wanted to play on the offensive line. I wanted to be a pulling guard. Back then, a pulling guard was real big. If you're fast, big and fast, they wanted to be a, I wanted to be an all-pro pulling guard in the NFL. Like Joe John Lur, who worked with my high school mm -hmm. team, and us impressed me that we could make it. And Reggie McKenzie, they worked with us at our high school football because I wanted to be like them. So I, I was like so obstinate and stubborn about wanting to play on offense. And they wanted, they thought from all the testing and vertical leaps and everything that I was ideally suited. Here I was at linebacker U, not wanting to play linebacker. I mean, they had to be like, what is this kid, is he kidding us? So I ended up uh, transferring, uh, used the excuse that my parents had moved to Florida, which they had temporarily, and I wanted to be an engineer in my family. Joe's such a family guy, ended up allowing me to transfer, because otherwise you gotta, Back then, at least, you had to get a signature, and then mm -hmm. redshirt. That's when I redshirted. Okay. I had to redshirt that fall, but if I didn't have uh, Joe, wasn't nice enough to sign the release, I would have had to. I would have lost, I think, another year of eligibility mm -hmm. or something, because I had reported that fall to Penn State for a week. A week. The um, Lou Saban was the head coach at Miami at that time. Now, hey, they welcomed he, me with open arms, and it was a. He had been with the Bills. He was, right. he was building the program up. We ended up getting Jim Kelly coming in right the class behind me, and that's when things really started popping. Miami always had a great program for putting on NFL talent, individuals, but team-wide, we always had the, the most, because we were independent, 
most difficult schedule every right. single year when I went there in the in the college football division one. We used to play my my year I transferred there. We played seven of the top ten teams in the country that year. Seven of the top, not twenty five, seven of the top team countries in, in the country uh, in the nation on our schedule that year. We'd be three and eight, and we had a great year mm -hmm. for almost any team. Yeah, I think if you took one of those top ten teams and gave us our schedule back then, they would have been six and five or five and six. That's how, in my opinion, difficult our schedule was. But out of that exposure we got playing all those great programs, Saban came in and capitalized that. So you're going to play against the best of the best here. You might not win all the time, but man, if you want to get ready to go on to pro, I was a pro coach, come to Miami. That started that whole Miami thing going. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Johnson came in behind it. I mean, Schnellenberger, then Johnson, and just mushroomed. The, um, speaking of culture shocks from Buffalo to uh, to State College. Oh, man. <laughs> from State College to Miami had to be uh, even more significant. It was. From the rolling hills of Happy Valley with that bitter cold winter and the wind blowing through there and snow to palm trees, sand, and, the, and surf. The main focus of the, of the University of Miami campus was a quadruple-sized Olympic swimming pool with a smoothie bar. <laughs> I was gonna say, how did you behave? That was our student gathering place. I was gonna say, how did you go how did class. you behave yourself? But I but I know you that class. you didn't. So. No, I didn't. We used to have uh, they had these girls that baked cookies for us on, on the home games and stuff called the Hurricane Honeys, and they would uh, they would we had a uh, set up a, a a a student aid I called it where we used to they used to help us take our tests and write our papers and we used to come up with these elaborate schemes out smart the professors because. So if they thought we we had used somebody else's work or we were copying off someone's test, I used to tell the group when we get together with the Hurricane Honeys and the players that if we worked as hard and studied as hard at outsmarting the professor and outwitting them on the actual test, we'd all get A's. But that was our that was our strategy. We called it "Don't Break the Seal." And in Miami back then, and uh, please students, so <laughs> I look back now, I wish I'd, I'd taken advantage of a great education opportunity. But back then, not break the seal meant we as student athletes on scholarship didn't have to wait in line for our books and pick them out. They'd have all our books ready for us in a great big Ziploc like giant bag. And the bragging rights were, well, how'd you do? Well, I, man, I got, I got a 2.4, which is not that good, but, but and you still be informed of it, but I didn't break the seal. That meant you didn't break the seal on your book bag. You, got, you passed and stayed eligible without ever going to class or or opening a book. The um, things kind of seemed like they were going pretty well in the field for a they while were. there. And yeah, then, I was uh, being touted heavily as a sophomore there, starting, and they had me in the, I had one of the big pitchers in their program, and uh, I remember Dallas Cowboys were one of the teams that was really the scouting, and their scout tested me on spring day prior to my next sophomore season there, and he had spoken to me that Hey, if you, you know, stay out of trouble, and uh, with your with way you're testing out on your 40 and vertical and your height and weight and strength in the weight room, and you'll be a surefire top first round pick. Because it, it's a Dallas Cowboys, it's a no brainer for you if you. So I, he wanted, he was doing me a favor on them. Hey, kid, you got yeah, you, get you, your act you, together. By what you measure right now as a sophomore, you're a you're a top first round pick in the draft. How did things start to derail? I didn't. I didn't. I, I, I worked hard on my physical skills. That he told me how good I was at, but I, I didn't. He his advice about keeping it straight and staying out of trouble, obviously. So 
I did the unimaginable, and it wasn't just one incident. We got into things like car tipping instead of cow tipping, and the main Midwestern schools we tipped cars over, and I got into a bunch of crazy stuff with a crazy crowd there, and ended up getting kicked out of whatever we thought was the all-time renegade football program back in the good old days. They called it. I don't know why they called it the good old days. I got kicked out of the University of Miami, which they thought was impossible. The crowd, I guess, the incident that that threw Coach Saban over the top was I was at a luxury hotel in Atlanta, actually, where I lived now at the Westin, which is still there. Back then, it was the crown jewel of Atlanta. And I I got pranked on uh, by one of my roommates. He uh, poured water all over my suit, my got, and, and, and I only had one suit to travel with. So while well, he went down to the, when we were heading down to the team dinner, so I skipped the team dinner and got a key to his room. And I mean, I just shaving creamed and just, just messed his room up basically vandalized and shaving cream and water everywhere and just messed his room up in the hotel, reported it to the coach. And amongst all the other things that have been happening on campus with the car tipping, mm-hmm. we had destroyed our own apartment and just crazy, stupid stuff looking back. But Saban uh, let me know that uh, I was off the team. Now, I thought he'd, he'd kick me off for good, so I dropped out of school and, and uh, right away and dropped out of classes. But he, he had planned on suspending me for the rest of the season. I was, we were six games into our season. As a, in my sophomore year. And you said you weren't super remorseful? I wasn't. You weren't? No, I really wasn't. I just thought, well, if, if I, I was upset because I wanted to play football. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I felt that if I couldn't, if I was going to go there to class and couldn't go down and meet at the, at the trading table and the trading room and lift weights with the guys, hang out with the guys, I didn't want to go to school there because I wasn't in the class, so I just dropped out of class. And... Uh, and I had an interview with one of the Miami Herald guy, head report sports guys, interview with me, and I kind of blasted Coach Saban, which I didn't realize was that would, if there was any chance of me coming back on a team, that was that was closing the door because I was every other head coach and that, that recruits with Miami is going to uh, show that article sure. about me blasting Saban and the way he handles the players. And that wasn't a good idea either. <laughs> no, probably. But not. I wasn't good at listening to people back then or or or, uh, or keep my mouth shut. Now, did you start? Bouncing around that time, I did. That was I had done that at Miami, at the top club down there on weekends. The guys used to feed us big steaks afterwards, and it was like a, a fancy dress-up nightclub, and with a restaurant and, and live music, and it was the top club in Miami. So we went there for spending money. Miami is a very rich private school, so we were the only kids that have any money on campus. So we wanted some spending money, so we used to work there at the club down Miami. Went to Lauderdale. I got a job with the two top clubs. One was Mr. Pips and one was Pete and Lenny's. I ended up working just at Pete and Lenny's. That was the, the number one club back in the disco heyday with all the outfits and the big hair and the gold chains and all the drug dealers and mafioso guys came in there and hung out. And that was the, the spot. They didn't have to wait in line, of course. It was usually a line from here to, to uh, I mean, a mile long to get in that club every night. And I was at the front door. Mm-hmm. They positioned me right there. So that was, that was my, my new career temporarily. I was the front door man at the Pete Lenny's Club. As a position of influence, if you were the front door guy, I would think. Yeah. The um, when does the exposure to wrestling start around now? And then when does you obviously kind of pursued football for first? Yeah, I was all football. Didn't yeah. follow wrestling. Didn't grow up watching. My granddaddy watched a little bit, but no one in our family was into it. I wasn't. I uh, my later days in football, I played for a year for Memphis Showboats and Pepper Rogers. Mm-hmm. The Memphis Showboats, and I was 
I was had kind of I was always kind of a rebel. My hair was a little longer, and I was uh, so into the weights that my body was so muscular. That instead of thinking football, Memphis was a wrestling, not a wrestling, but a wrestling town. So every around Memphis asked me if I was a pro wrestler. So it made me think. Ask me if I'm a pro wrestler. What's up with that? I'm a football player. I think about wrestling. But then after that season, the off season, WrestleMania hit was hitting, and Andre the Giant, I think it was WrestleMania two or three, they broke the indoor attendance record at the Pontiac Silverdome. And I was just all in it for the money back then. I thought, man, we got to do that in the off season for football with my physique, and maybe, maybe, uh, and there might be some good money in that. So I walked into. I, uh, the office at Tampa, I was living in Tampa at the time, in the off season for football, for the warm weather. And I walked in Champions Wrestling in Florida, and the rest was history. I hooked up with a guy named Hiro Matsuda, who was a wonderful man, a mentor who trained me, and it all fell in place. They're looking for the new prototype, uh, Hulk Hogan type big guy with the muscles, and the rest was history. I was, I went there in the off season and trained with Matsuda, and never went back to football. I was off and running in 86 of my pro wrestling career. Was the CFL before going to Memphis then? It was. When I got kicked out of Miami, I had no choice but to play in the CFL because I wasn't old enough. My, I, my class had to right. graduate back then, so I went to the CFL, then the NFL, the Green Bay, then the USFL because I wanted to get back down to Tampa Bay Bandits who had my rights in the warm weather. Uh, I know I'm going fast here, but I jumped around. A, mm -hmm. You see a pattern here. I was always trying to look at the <laughs> improve things, like move on up. So an upgrade. I was always looking for an upgrade. So I went to, ended up in the USFL. When that folded, I was living in Tampa, walked into the wrestling office, and the rest was history. You took to it right away? I did. I didn't know it, but I was, I Matsuda said I was, he used to run guys off. And he said, I, I uh, he had me in the ring within like a month, and I was wrestling within three months. Was the fastest anybody had ever gone through his, his regimen, because he really wanted to weed out the guys who really wanted or who didn't. So I, I, him and I were a, just there was a real energy between us. And Matsuda was, I didn't know what a rare find he was as a mentor because he didn't ever charge you. He's, if he saw a guy with town, he broke Hogan in. He broke Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff in. He broke Razor Ramon in. He, all, he was known, I didn't realize it, for just breaking only like top talents. Never had a school. He just wanted to see guys for something that he had been a, Judo champion in Japan came to the U.S. and had an unbelievably successful career as a wrestler. And he felt that it was his way of giving back the sport. And he would train certain guys, and he, he was in it for the intrinsics of watching somebody succeed in a, in a sport that he loved. So I couldn't have, God couldn't have connected me with a better mentor at that time in my life. How did you go from that training into really getting into things, matches starting? and My and first that? match I went to, People laugh at this live wrestling match that I didn't grow up watching it or was uh, my first match. I went from Matsuda's dungeon he trained us at to um, an arena, my first wrestling match live. It was the first wrestling I'd ever been at. It was my first debut match in the Daytona Beach, Florida, the Daytona Beach Ocean Center. I'll never forget it. That was my first match against Coco Samoa. And that was my first match I'd ever been at live. I'd seen it on television. Right. I'd never been to a live match. They were like, you got to be kidding me. I was like, no. When did you have the, uh, the motorcycle accident? Was that, was that later? That was in the early 90s. Okay. I'd already gone on to 
uh, be with WCW mm-hmm. from Florida. There was WWE, WCW, there were two big groups. I was right. WCW and was already at uh, one world championship. My career obviously was a meteoric rise and uh, like the 4th of July fireworks never never went off, all 15 years. And By then I was well along in my career and I was gonna do a, uh, I was actually leaving WCW, taking a year off and I was gonna go to WWE. Mm-hmm. And I was gonna do, Vince McMahon was doing a bodybuilding thing at the time called WBF. And I was gonna be a body, pro bodybuilder for a year. I signed a contract. I was a pro bodybuilder and had a horrific head-on collision. Right two weeks before the contest, I was in the best shape of my life ever, and had a uh, had a uh, before the bodybuilding show I was going to do for WBF, and be on display. And here I had a motorcycle wreck and just tore my whole body up. Almost lost my right arm. They didn't think I was going to make it. I lost so much blood. It was a a, a near-death experience. Head-on with a car at 45 miles per hour on my Harley, and. Um, I met a woman just a while back who said she actually came down there. She was the car behind the car that hit me. Hmm. How God connects people. She said that she came down to the woods to pray with me. Her husband wouldn't go down. That I got slingshot off that car so far and so fast into the woods that he said that there's no way. He said, I'm squeamish. There's no way that man's alive from that accident. She went down there to see. She was first at the scene at me. She said, I stayed there and prayed with you until the medics got there. Do you remember that young man? Incredible. And Dr. James Andrews was the was the doctor. Humpty Dumpty. He was. They were gonna cut my arm off at Atlanta. Right. Said, you'll never have you sure ever again. I said, Well, you're not touching me. We had a big standoff. They ended up transferring Dr. Andrews, sting my best friend in wrestling, and had a knee done by him. He called Andrews in the middle of the night. Andrews said, Don't let him cut his arm off. Send him in. Let me take a look at it. They were taking my right arm off. I thought I was gonna be, have to be Captain Hook uh, in wrestling. So I go, well, I'm gonna wrestle one arm. So I said, you're not touching me at this big standoff with the surgeons at Northfield Hospital in Atlanta. They were going to take my arm off. They go, you're not going to use that arm again. Was, I had double compound bones sticking out, hanging out of my arm. We never, even if we fix it, you'll never be able to use it again. And Dr. Anderson said he got in there. He had surgery. He's rolled he's around. Any athlete has surgery. Even if they don't have any surgery, they consult Absolutely. with Dr. Yeah. Andrews. He looked at it. He goes, oh. He's like, started. He goes, I didn't think I could do much of it either. because I kind of connected this and then that. And he goes, he goes, man, I kind of kind of came together in there. He goes, I don't know how much you shall have your hand and stuff again. But he goes, I think we maybe got something done in there. Modest as he is. And I was back in wrestling six months later, and my right arm and hand was as strong as the left. No loss of function, anything. It's, it was, looking back now, it was supernatural. But I, I didn't credit it that, as that. I just thought I was, at the time, Lucky Larry. You know, I wasn't Lex yet, so right. Lucky Larry. Well, I was Lex, but... I, my family called me Lucky Larry. There's another Lucky Larry story. I get a head head on wreck with a car, and I'm on a Harley going 45 miles on a blind curve and survive and be wrestling six months later. You talked a little bit earlier about you were kind of always chasing the next thing and uh, wrestling. Seems always looking for an upgrade. Absolutely. It said seemed Coveting, like I, I've learned it's called. It seemed like um, even that the um, there wasn't a lot of unification obviously between different things and uh, you know what was kind of play that out a little bit about kind of where you started and then and then the a few of those moves that you made um. I was always jumping around looking for a better deal mm-hmm. uh, I was trying to find like many of us can I was trying to find fulfillment and happiness through temp- temporary things such as my job money my our fame things like that which 
which I, I know now is a very empty chase. And you'll never find fulfillment through that because there's never enough fame. There's never enough money. Somebody's always got more fame or more money or more stuff, more influence. So it's an empty chase, but I, I, I chased it hard. When that didn't work, I started chasing happiness through self-destructive things like partying and women and things. I thought maybe that's the answer. I'll celeb, do that celeb thing. Well, work hard, play hard mentality back then. And uh, the bad boy thing, image. And I chased through that and I gave up my family. I had two beautiful children at the time, Peggy. I, I, lost, I, I just gave up all that chasing what I, I didn't, I, I knew I wasn't finding true fulfillment through all those other things. So I said, maybe, maybe it's the, maybe it's through other women, maybe it's through alcohol and drugs and partying. And obviously that was a, when my, I really started taking a downward spiral. Going back a little bit. When like bad, one bad choice, I thought, you know, there's a universal principle, we reap what we sow. Mm -hmm. I was making a lot of bad decisions, I mean, sowing a lot of bad seed, and it started accumulating and coming back on me. Like a like a like a like a uh, ap like a apocalyptic uh, proportions, like a tsunami. Everybody said we have storms in our life. I ended up having like a midlife tsunami, based on all those little decisions I made along the way that I didn't think were that significant, right? Or were bad choices that ended up being hurtful to myself and other people. Going back a little bit, when did you first start with uh, with steroids? Well, that was back then. They weren't even classified. I was back in college, mm -hmm. and when I went to my first year pro, I wanted to gain a bunch of weight because I was at the beach and I didn't have training tape. I lost like 20 pounds, so I wanted to beef up. So the guy at the Gold's Gym I was at said, man, take, take some of these five milligram blue Danon Danaball. Take four or, little, four or five of those a day, and you'll gain that 20 pounds and, and before training camp, and, and it worked. So I used to take them just in the off-season for six weeks, mm -hmm. then the next off season, I made it, took them for eight weeks, and I started going on twelve week cycles in the off season for football. I uh, for game for during my strength gaining phase, and then twelve weeks prior to training camp, I was running more and conditioning more. And during the season, I wouldn't take them. I only take them during the off season during my real size and strength game. And then they, I felt they did. They definitely worked. And my wife was very upset, not big on it at all. Why didn't you take those? You broke all the records at Miami without ever taking that stuff. Why are you taking it? Well, well, I didn't want anybody else to get the edge. I, I think all athletes were like a level playing field, but you think other guys are doing it. And they weren't even illegal back then. I, I, I was like, why not? It was my mentality back then. Why should I let anybody get the edge on me? I was a little bit surprised to learn in the book that uh, the WWF actually had pretty stringent uh, drug testing. My whole career for... Uh, over three years of time at WWF at the time, now WWE was mm -hmm. rough free. They used to test us sometimes three, four nights in a row. I mean, I'm talking um, shirt off, no, sh no shirt on top, pants below the knees, the guy standing right in front of you. It was totally legitimate, the real deal. Guys in the lab coats, white, we used to call them the white coats, to test you. Because he was under federal charges at the time was part of the reason. I think he really did want to clean things up, but he right. was under charges of some uh, associated that he ended up being exonerated from. But So he was keeping everything squeaky clean on the drug thing then, definitely. The, um, there had to be some irony that 
Sting, who became your best friend, was really the first person, and then someone actually that ultimately tried to get you out of that life that you were living, was in some ways the first person that really kind of started pushing you into it. In terms of uh, painkillers and... and uh, Well, he didn't push me into it, but we definitely did them together. He was right there with me. Mm -hmm. I didn't need too strong a nudge back then to make bad choices, but uh, he was right there with me at the time. Definitely. The... Um, and I didn't understand it when he decided he wasn't going to do it anymore. I was in shock. Sure. I thought he'd lost his mind. I go, well, what's wrong with you? He goes, oh, I made a decision in my life. I, and then I realized his brother was a pastor, and he said he'd become a born-again Christian. I was like, oh, no. I've lost my best friend's religion, I called it. I didn't grow up in church, so I was like, right. my best friend just got religious on me. I go, oh, no, that poor guy. I, I was, I was, I was, and then I ended up going through, I was angry at him because he had, told his wife everything that he had, you know, that had been going on. I, was, I thought that she might tell my wife, I would, man, I, I thought I, my best friend, I'd lost my best friend and then he betrayed me. So we almost didn't speak hardly at all for for a number of years after he got saved. And I didn't understand what being saved even meant. I go, what's this, you're born again? What the, I was like Nicodemus and uh, and when he's asking Jesus in John 3 about, well, how can you be born again? I've already been born. And I, I was like that was saying, what do you mean you're born again? I was like, you lost your mind. That's that was my attitude back then. Sure. I don't want to give away too much of the book, and I think it's really compelling this part of it. But uh, talk a little bit about um, the relationship with Miss Elizabeth starting that, and then kind of what resulted from that. Well, why arrogantly said there's so many available women out there at the time? Why would anybody ever ever get in a relationship with somebody who works for the same company? Why would I get back to your wife? I go, man, there's so many fish out there in the sea. I go, why would you fish in your own in your own backyard, in your own swimming pool? And there I go. Years later, ended up getting a relationship with Miss Elizabeth and uh, having a uh, ended up moving to Atlanta. I had an east west side west side story going on. My wife and family lived on the east side of Atlanta, and I had a girlfriend near by a gym I owned called Midwood Fitness on the west side of town. It was uh, absolute insanity. Insane time in my life. I had a wife on one side of town, a family and a mistress on the other. Sting tried to approach me and I arrogantly announced to him because I thought he was trying to be a holy roller. He tried to address it to me one time at a pay-per-view and I'll forget back in the, I tell this in the book, back in the back. He approached me a couple years after he got saved about Lex, you got your wife and kids to hear three people and then you got Elizabeth, this girlfriend, he goes, man, like what are you doing? What? He tried to appeal to me. I thought he was trying to evangelize or, or I didn't even know that word back then. I thought he was mm -hmm. religious on me. So I, uh, I, I, I stormed out of the room, stood up and told him, don't worry about me, uh, Sting. I go, there's plenty of total packages to go around. And he was, I think, brand new at, 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 at sharing the gospel back then. I don't think, he, as my nerve forget the look on his face when I walked away, he's like, man, Lex is really, like, really out there. He's so full of himself, man. Mm -hmm. I didn't even talk to a guy like that. I was so worldly and so full of myself that I thought that I had no accountability to anybody. I thought I was, I thought, I, I, I grew up a huge Superman fan. I literally thought I was Superman. I got through that motorcycle wreck. I thought I was almost, in, that if you thought you had kryptonite, you weren't going to be able to do anything to me. When um, you talk in the book about the dream, for lack of a better yeah. term, what? I hit a real low point after Elizabeth. Uh, uh, tragically passed away of a drug mm -hmm. overdose. Instead of that being a wake-up call, I went further in the power to get drugs and alcohol and 
who knows how many times I could overdose. I had a dream. I'm not a guy who dreams, but I had a dream at the bottom of a pond. And my biggest fear, if I had any fears back then, I told everybody I was fearless, but if, if, if I ever had to go, I didn't want to go from drowning because I thought that'd be a, a bad way to go and not be able to breathe. That you'd really struggle for a while and be really a bad way to go. And I had a dream, of course, where I ended up at the bottom of a pond of unimaginable depths where there was no light, no sound, no air. And I ended up in the bottom of that pond in the muck. And, and I was at a, a point in my life where I was in a life and death struggle for real with drugs and alcohol. And I, I truly believe with all my heart I overdosed that night. I was going to be another dead wrestler found in a hotel room. I was in a hotel room on a couch. And I truly believe that I overdosed that night. And here's a guy who never remembers his dreams. This dream was so vivid, Todd, that, man, when I got awoken back out of that dream, I truly thought that, that it was like I, I was in that dream. I literally was the bottom of the pond in the gates of hell. God, I believe, I didn't realize it then, that was my spiritual awakening. There was a little, just when I was ready to, I was saying to myself, man, I can't get to the top. I'm too far down underwater. I'll never make it back to the top to get air. And, I, and I, I was trying to convince myself that maybe if I just lay back down, lay down and quit and breathe in the water, it'll go quicker. That's where I was in my life. Talk about a low point. And for some reason, um, I, I realized, I, I know the reason now, but then I realized there's something down there with me. Presence. I didn't know what it was, but it bugged me. I was wanting to lay down, and it bothered me. I'm like, man, leave me alone. I'm having a moment here. I'm at the bottom of a pond. I can't breathe, and I'm, fa I'm facing death. I remember saying, is this all there is? The bottom of a pond all by yourself, and this is how I go out. And there's a little speck, not shining in, that all this darkness I've enveloped, enveloped in the bottom of this pond, a little speck of white light. That was the most brilliant. My, I actually sat off the bottom of that pond instead of laying back. To look at what it was, it was a speck of white light that showed me that in all this darkness I was in, was I was surrounded by brilliant, the most brilliant white light you can describe it. And that made me sit up and come to you off the couch. I literally was so panicked and so scared from that that I ran to the Bible in my room. They had a Gideon's Bible in there and started trying to read the Bible. And I didn't understand it was in King James. And I started in Genesis and the chronology and I it against the walls and this can't be it but I ran to the Bible in my room that's how scared I was God never ever picked the Bible before in his life and I got scared straight I thought I could once again do it myself and I went off drugs and alcohol so I'm going to do one bit less self-reliant self-will come back and wrestling that's going to make everything alright I thought out of that dream hmm. it didn't work out that way but I thought <laughs> I thought I could fix things because I'm thinking I could fix things right there's a great story in the book that I'm not going to have you talk through Trying to get into Canada, you get stopped. But uh, that was my big comeback. Yeah. Yeah. The, Didn't work uh, out too good, did it? <laughs> that's right. They um, ultimately end up in uh, Cobb County Jail. Two strip searches later. Right. Um, talk a little bit about Canadian U.S. immigration. Yeah. Took a, a little bit about that um, experience, and then uh, and then Pastor Steve. Well, I thought right. I was going to get down, extradited back from Canada through Minneapolis to Atlanta. Get get. It was a holiday time. I thought I was going to get there and just bail myself out and watch the bowl games and regroup mm -hmm. since my debut didn't work out the way I thought it would because I ended up in jail. Not a very good debut. 
got to have another plan. And so I went in front of the judge. He was so mad at me for trying to go to Canada without the right paperwork that he gave me four months in jail. And I was devastated because more than anything, I was going to miss my bowl games, right. my football. And what was the championship game? It was Texas versus Ohio State that year. And I was, man, that, that was my longest one time. I was in out of jail a lot, but my longest one time stint. Right. And time was going slow in there, and I had met a, there was this crazy, I thought crazy, chaplain that kept on trying to, he's, I found out he's a pastor at a local church, kept on trying to come and talk to me. And uh, he knocked on the window, I'd never go and talk to him. It got to be a big joke with all the guys in my, in my pod. He'd come knocking on the glass window, and I'd be at the back at my bunk, and, and uh, all the guy here comes that chaplain, Lex, he's in the, all the other inmates, and that got to be a big thing. So I got so bored that I finally went out and talked to him, because I found out the only way you can get out of the, out of the, out of the pod or cell block is to, is to talk to a chaplain. Otherwise, you, you're in there. We never, it's not like on TV, right, this, this exercise yard and all that stuff. You were in, you were locked down, basically, all, all 24-7. So I, 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 I was, here's my way to, to get out and uh, other, away from all those other guys for an hour. So I ended up meeting with him. The um, paralysis, how, when did that come about? And, oh uh, man, that was just a few years back when I thought I had, I thought life was all good. And I uh, had, uh, um, by the grace of God, had been, been saved from myself and, and uh, had a bunch of wonderful people surrounding me and, and become, uh, got saved and become a born again believer on, on April 23rd of 06. And, and uh, I've been warned that doesn't mean that, the, that the, it doesn't, the winds don't blow or rain doesn't hit fall on Christians, but uh, I had all my plans of being the big uh, baby boomer. I Now that I had things squared away with God, I was going to be the big baby boomer, Jack Lane of the baby boomers. Right. Fitness guru. I was going to be the hood emblem. I was pushing the weights real heavy, and I was trying to be all big and ripped and strong at age 47, and ended up uh, totally paralyzed from neck down in a hotel room. A year and a half after I got saved off an airplane flight where I had my head turned after a heavy weight workout and because of the way my head was turned and the wear and tear from my wrestling and football days and the heavy workout I'd done in that area I squeezed off like a steward rodeo sitting in a seat like that the blood flow to my central cord lights out they said I, would, I had a zero to five percent chance of any movement ever again from the neck down hmm. the um, I'm going to ask a few questions that uh some fans have uh, have sent in, and um, that they're kind of not chronological, but they jump around a little bit. Sure. We can go through some of these. Um, the first one was, uh, how has Sting uh, impacted your life? Oh, man, I just was at his Hall of Fame induction for teenage wrestling a while back, and uh, what he means to me, and uh, friends of friends at all times, Proverbs 17, 17, uh, he embodies that. Uh, we have a great love for each other, a great brotherhood now that we share in Christ. And uh, he, uh, he said he never gave up on me. He would always call me at my worst, and I wouldn't pick up his call. I'd listen to his voicemails. He was there when I had that, my arm hanging off me uh, way back when, when I had that motorcycle wreck. He, him and I are inextricably, what's the word, inextricably? Inextricably, yeah. Uh, connected. God put us together as, as like brothers. and. Uh, 
we have a, just a wonderful relationship, and he's been a mentor to me uh, now and a, and a real guiding uh, light in my life. We have a very, very uh, wonderful, special friendship. As you've grown as a child of Christ, was there any advice given to you about faith that profoundly impacted you? Oh, I, I, not one, any one particular. I, I am so fortunate to be surrounded with a, a bunch of incredible mentors from day one, from that pastor, Mm -hmm. Chapel Steve Baskin to Dr. Frady to Atlanta is just full of wonderful ministries and just they've encouraged me and and just uh, discipled me and mentored me and watered me and uh, just uh, just they've they've told me that and what really got me through even my spawn friends here that they let me know that it's not about us it's not about you anymore Les it's about love God with all your heart soul mind and strength they taught me when Jesus was asked the two most important commandments we're trying to trip the mm -hmm. Pharisees are trying to trip them up and he said and love that name you serve others so when you're paralyzed from neck down you you don't have control over anything you really it's about trusting God one of my favorite um, verses in the Bible is Proverbs 3 5 and 6 trust in the Lord with all thine heart lean not upon your understanding why did everything happen in my life why was I paralyzed well I was paralyzed to get myself out of the way finally and instead of trying to do it my way, to do it God's way. And there's a very special verse of the Bible called 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, which you're at question, all my mentors have taught me, that uh, uh, in our greatest weakness, God's strength can best be displayed, what that verse basically says. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened with the spinal cord injury. It's been a huge blessing in my life. It just, it's given me more empathy for others who have special challenges in their life and adversities. Um, it's, it's just connecting with a whole new group of people. It's been an incredible journey. I wouldn't trade it for anything, including the spinal cord injury. It's uh, amazing how God can take lemons and turn it into lemonade when we give him time to do it and allow, and allow him to, to lead our life rather than us trying to lead it. I wanted to ask you about uh, the current state of wrestling, where you think it's at, where it's going, the health of uh, professional wrestling. Well, wrestling's a, a bigger than ever. It's a billion billion dollar industry I mean so wrestling as an entertainment uh, medium is extremely healthy um, I feel that uh, I feel led by a lot of people I'm involved with a great organization called the World Wrestling Outreach where we want to work with wrestlers who are retired who aren't coping well and give them any assistance they might need uh, bring some balance back in their life mm-hmm I, I can definitely relate to. Uh, we want to have a set up an 800 hotline for any current wrestlers who might be going through the same things that myself and many others went through, any struggles. And, and uh, we also want to start a, a uh, training to disciple young wrestlers through a, this nonprofit organization to disciple and train them, maybe get some, some fine young, we want to change the industry. Because uh, when I did it, there wasn't anybody talking about Jesus in the locker room. So to get that started, rather than try to preach to them, tell them what they should be doing, the current wrestlers, I think we help the guys who did struggle and offer us assistance with no strings attached to the current guys and start infusing young, hopefully maybe some Tim Tebow type athletes mm -hmm. into wrestling. We can maybe affect it in a positive way to help change the industry from inside out. So I'm very excited about, I think that some of the changes we're gonna see with some of the individuals that get into professional wrestling. I think that's going to be wonderful. But wrestling remains very popular. 
and, and have a watch. It's still one of the top cable programs always. Sure. And that, that, that remains pretty much the same. The topics aren't quite as family orientated, but they've sort of taken a turn back that way now. Uh, Vince McMahon has found with his wife Linda, who's got politically motivated lately, that it might be an advantage, especially for the young kids who love to watch wrestling, to have it a little more family orientated where the parents aren't sitting there in fear of having to grab the channel changer if something objectionable comes up on the show. Sure. Uh, Content-wise. So I, I think there's, if you ask, to answer your question also, I think there's a trend back towards more family-orientated, good guy, bad guy story stuff rather than uh, what they call edgy or, or really adult content on wrestling. I think that's a great great thing to see. I think I have high hopes for the future of wrestling. But there was an, this was an interesting question. Someone asked, uh, pro wrestlers aren't like movie celebrities. Their personas aren't necessarily based on a person, but a made-up image or a theme. When you have such a public persona, how easy is it to lose your sense of self? And if you lose it, how can you get the real person back and reground yourself? Well, for me, my, my personal story is what, that's a great question, because I, I got totally lost into, into being Lex Luger and total backwards, and, and Larry didn't even exist really anymore. The person my mom dad raised to be the kind of man they, want, they, they thought. And um, for me, I tried rehab, and people tried to counsel me, but for me it was strictly just supernatural. It was divine intervention uh, for me. Uh, so, um, and that, and I, what I love about that is that's available to every, everybody. I just didn't realize that that was available to me as well all that time. I ignored it, but that's always there. He's always, I, I tell people when I share my story now that God's always been there for them. He loves them. He's, he's always there quietly knocking at the door, but you got to door handle of your hearts on the inside to get open to him. And for me, it's been opening him, letting God take over my life, instead of me trying to steer it, um, turn my life over to Jesus, allowing God to guide and direct my life now. And, and I've never had more peace and contentment and, and uh, a feeling I can't even put into words of knowing that he's guiding and controlling my life now, and I'm not trying to. Uh, it's a lot easier that way. <laughs> so let him lead. Sure. Who, why not let the who created us know what we're here for? Let us think we can figure it out. In the book, you talk about one time you were an ATM and or checking your checking account, you had seven hundred thousand um, dollars, in your banking or in your checking that's account. That's realistic for most folks to right, to, isn't right. It? What's well, uh, there's seventy dollars in there. What role did money play in your life struggles? Oh, huge! I was oh man, I was money centered. I was idolatry of money. I, I read the Rob Report magazine and the Dupont Registry for cars. And, I wanted more cars, bigger houses, bigger bank accounts. And so really at the time, like having $700,000 in my checking account on my ATM slip for my balance didn't even phase me. I'm like, man, I'm, 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 I'm on my way. So it didn't even phase me. I had no appreciation for it, nor did it register with me. But, sure. You know, I was, told, I was, all, about, I was all about the money. I, that song by the, by the uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's the OJ's, Money, Money, Money. <laughs> That was me. That was my life. And that, but that's a, I, I've, I've learned now and throughout the Bible explains that it's not so much money, but the Bible says it's actually it's the love of money. That verse is the root of all evil. And man, it's boy, it is. It can be. If you could you live. Say, if you center your life on it. Sure. 
if you could live your life over again, what one thing would you do differently? Not one, not get off on that money chase, and to know that God created everything, and He provides for all of us, and that it's all His, not ours. And uh, so now I, He's given me a life that be a, a balanced life uh, that brings honor and glory to Him, and to serve others with our whatever talents and gifts we have, and to share. The good news, I call it like the three-step trifecta. It's, it's love and honoring God, our Creator, um, and serving other people with whatever talents gifts we have in the community and, and with your family and, and with strangers and whatever you can do and, and to share the good news. I'm so thankful how God's changed my life and the peace He's given me and the direction of my life now. I, how could I not share that with everybody? I have, the, I have the best news I ever could share with everybody. Forget about financial advice or mm-hmm. or, or lifestyle advice. I'm, I got uh, the gift of eternal life, forgiveness, redemption, all that wrapped in one bottle of wax, and, and and the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide my life now. I mean, that, that's the total package. I thought I was the total package. That's the total package. And I'm so thankful for that now that I, I'm so excited to share that with other people. And that's was a, was the reason, and the only reason I did this book was to share. Supernaturally, what God's done in my life, and that what I know He can do for their lives as well. Along those lines, how do you ultimately want to be remembered? And uh, along those lines, what uh, what do you hope your legacy will be? Well, I hope that when I get to heaven, that uh, it'll be that I was a good and faithful servant. Paul wrote two thirds New Testament was the chief of sinners. He called himself and used to persecute and round up and execute Christians, and. Uh, and as people read my story, I was a bad boy. Made a lot of bad decisions, but that it's never too late. I like, he's an example of the thief at the cross. He was like, Jesus, you know, take me home with you. And, and boy, the thief in the cross, he went, it's never too late for anybody out there. But if it wasn't too late for me, it's not too late for anybody. I want to be an encourager, encourage people to embrace that and know that whatever's happened in their life, whatever adversity they've been through or whatever dark times, even if it was their own bad decisions, that it's never too late. That they'll turn it over to Jesus. And, and uh, as far as legacy, the little people decide that, but that is the main focus God's given me now in my life. For how much time I have left. 